It is so wonderful to see you here on this beautiful Sunday morning. This is an exciting time for our church, and uh, I want to look ahead very briefly to next Sunday. As you know, next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and December 24th, we have a special Sunday planned, of course, as you've heard, but 10 a.m. is our church-wide service next Sunday, and then we invite you to come. Come with your entire family at 10 a.m., and if you forget and come at 9, that's okay. (laughs) You'll just be early. That's okay. Better early than late. And then come back at 5 p.m. for our special Christmas Eve service. We're going to have a special service that night. It's going to culminate in a nativity scene, a live nativity scene in our parking lot as we sing by candlelight songs to our Savior. So it's going to be a special day and evening next Sunday. You'll also enjoy refreshments after our 10 a.m. service. And I'm going to ask a huge favor to those who are able to. If you're able to park off campus next Sunday, we have plenty of parking behind a.m. p.m., And that way we free up spots here for our senior adults and for those who are guests and visitors next Sunday. So for those who are able to, would you do me a huge favor and next Sunday, even if you forget and you start pulling into the parking lot, just pull right back out (laughs) and go park behind AMPM so that we make sure that our senior adults And those who are guests next week, they'll have plenty of parking because we want to make sure that we have enough parking because next Sunday we're expecting a large turnout for our 10 a.m. service. So thank you in advance for doing that. I want to say a huge thank you to our children's director, Melissa Lobozo, and her team for an amazing event on Friday night. Okay, so can we take a moment just to thank them? And I'll explain what I mean. We had PJ's Pizza and Popcorn, and the kids were blessed. They packed downstairs, but the people who were even more blessed than the kids were their parents because it gave them an opportunity to have a date night out, go shopping. And so the kids were downstairs for a solid three hours. And I stopped by early that evening, and it felt like it was VBS all downstairs. And so thank you to the amazing children's ministry team. Uh, That was a huge sacrifice on your part to bless our parents. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, the title of this morning's message is Come and See. Come and See. And we're going to be in John chapter 1 again. So this is our fourth Sunday in our series, and we are still in the first chapter. And uh, today we're going to cover verses 35 to 51. Next Sunday, next Sunday morning, and next Sunday evening, we're going to continue in John chapter 1 because we've left out some important verses that we're going to cover next Sunday. And next Sunday, I'm going to bring to you part 1 at 10 a.m. and part 2 at 5 p.m. So you can't miss either one, right? And so please come back for the final verses of John chapter 1. Then after we finish John 1 next Sunday, we only have 20 more chapters left of the book of John. And so it's taken us five Sundays to get through the first chapter. But this is such an incredibly rich chapter. All right, so in your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 35. I'll read to you verses 35 to 40 to begin 
our time this morning. Verse 35. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. So, John the Baptist is a person who said, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And John the Apostle is the one who describes this for us. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, look, there is the Lamb of God, John the Baptist's two disciples immediately went and followed Jesus. Now, one of the two disciples of John the Baptist was Andrew. And John the Apostle, the author of John's gospel, you all following, right? The Apostle John doesn't tell us the name of the second disciple, the second disciple of John the Baptist who follows Jesus. That reminds me, some years ago, there was a professional athlete who was a superstar in two sports. He was a prolific baseball and football player. His name, Bo Jackson. Bo was an all-star, superstar in both baseball and football. And whenever Bo had interviews, whenever he was interviewed by reporters, what was really interesting and fascinating was that Bo would always refer to himself by name, not like I. And so when an interviewer would ask him a question, he would say, well, Bo likes to play baseball. And Bo also likes to play football. Bo enjoys hitting home runs. Bo enjoys scoring touchdowns. And so people thought, wow, this is really peculiar. He doesn't call himself by I. I like to play baseball or football. It was always Bo likes this. Bo likes that. And so Nike, who sponsored Bo Jackson, they caught on to this. And they came up with this brilliant campaign this commercial campaign. And if you remember that era back then, watching commercials, it was a bow-nose commercial, right? Bow-nose baseball, bow-nose football, bow-nose all these sports. And so it really caught on. Bow-nose. Of course, bow-nose Nike. And so that made all the young athletes want to go out and purchase Nike. And so it was really peculiar that, that Bo called himself by his first name, right? So, so... Tim finds that somewhat amusing. <laughs> Tim appreciates all of you. Now, that sounds really strange. But later on, I would read about Bo's life, and it was really, it was, uh, it was encouraging. And the reason why he referred to himself by name and not I, when he was growing up, Bo had a speech impediment. 
If you've ever had a speech impediment, you know how difficult that is, how challenging and how embarrassing that could be. Bo, when he was younger, he had a very difficult time, and he would stutter. He would stutter constantly. And so I read about how he overcame that. He would look in the mirror and just rehearse by saying, Bo knows this, or Bo likes to play baseball, Bo likes to play football, and he overcame his stuttering. And so I thought that that was really neat. And so it wasn't just because, you know, you know, this sounds somewhat like, oh, wow, you know, who are you to call yourself by your name? But it was because he had to overcome his stuttering. And so I was thinking about that this past week when I was preparing for this message. And so my question is, what does Bo Jackson have to do with John chapter 1, okay? Well, in our first message in this series, we said that nowhere in John's gospel does he name himself as the author by name. But John, he does so in a very creative way, a much more creative way than just saying, I, John, am the author, okay? And he writes in John chapter 13, verse 23, he says this, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, I've got to love that, right? you got to love that. Jesus has this disciple reclining right next to him. And that disciple is none other than John, the apostle, the author of this gospel. And so John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's pretty cool. And not only was John one of the 12 disciples, he was also part of what's known as the inner circle. Three disciples were very dear to Jesus. Peter was one, and then the two brothers, John and James. And so these three were the closest to Jesus. But even within that inner circle, there was one who stood even closer to Jesus. And that was John, the apostle. And before we think, wow, well, John, you're so biased by saying you're the one that Jesus loved. We have to remember that Jesus entrusted to John the very care of his own mother. You don't say to just anybody, hey, take care of my mom. And so John was absolutely the beloved disciple. And so here in chapter 1, John the Apostle, he names Andrew as being one of the disciples of John the Baptist, who hears John the Baptist saying, look, there goes the Lamb of God. He doesn't name the other disciple. That other disciple is himself, John. And so John and Andrew, disciples of John the Baptist, follow Jesus, upon hearing their leader, John the Baptist, saying, look, there goes the Lamb of God. I find this really remarkable. I want us to grasp the significance of what John the Baptist was called to do. There are not many people in our society who would voluntarily diminish their own 
successful business, their own successful organization, their own successful ministry, all for the benefit of someone else's success. That's what John the Baptist did, and that's what he was called to do. When he said, look, there is the Lamb of God, he knew at that very moment that his disciples, the ones he invested all of his time into, would leave him and follow a new leader. Remember last week we said that one question that never entered John the Baptist's mind was, what's in it for me? He never once thought, you know what, hey, what, what do I get to gain from this? I'm building up this ministry. I've got all these followers. These are great men. These are future leaders. What's in it for me? If I give them up, God, are you going to provide me with others? He never once asked, what's in it for me? And in a society like ours, where people do everything uh, that they can to kind of hold on to trade secrets, right? Or at least sell them for a fortune. It's kind of difficult for us to understand that John the Baptist deliberately built up a successful ministry, gathered a great group of people, all this knowing fully well that he would give it up for somebody else. And that is radical. But John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus walk by, he proclaimed, look, there is the Lamb of God. Of all the designations of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King, notice John the Baptist chooses the designation, look, there is the the Lamb of God. Not the Messiah, not the King, not the Savior. John the Baptist chooses very deliberately to say, look, there is the Lamb of God. You see, because John the Baptist understood first and foremost that the issue that people must settle with God before anything else is that of sin. That's the first issue that we must settle with God. The only way that you and I can have access to God is through the forgiveness of sins. And that's what this season really ultimately, quite frankly, is all about. Jesus sent his son to ultimately die to forgive sins. And so John, the apostle, and Andrew are the first two who heard Jesus and then or they heard John say, look, there's the Lamb of God. And they followed Jesus. And what they heard must have had such an immediate impact because they just dropped everything. And when Jesus saw these two men, Andrew and John, the apostle following him, he turned and said to them and asked them a question, what do you want? What do you want? Those are the first words recorded in John's gospel from Jesus' mouth. What do you want? Of all the things 
that could have been recorded first in John's gospel, John chooses to record these words of Jesus. What do you want? That's a question that we're all familiar with, right? In fact, after church today, some of you will be on the patio talking with friends or family, and you'll ask the question, what do you want to eat for lunch today? It's a question we ask every single Sunday. What do you want? And for some, maybe your friend group here, you can't decide, so you're on the patio forever and ever because somebody wants this, somebody wants that, somebody wants that, right? What do you want to eat for lunch? It's a very familiar question. In some form or another, that question, what do you want, is really the most asked question in life. It certainly is this time of the year, right? What do you want for Christmas? And so parents will often go to their kids and ask, what do you want for Christmas this year? And sometimes, even if parents don't ask, kids, they'll take the initiative. Mom, Dad, here's my Christmas wish list. Even if the parents don't ask. Here are my top 35 gifts. You can choose any 30 of these 35 gifts for me. What do you want? It's a popular question. It can also be a, a frustrating question. Every young parent has been in that situation, face-to-face -face with an inconsolable crying child. We've all been there. If you are a parent, what do you want? Are you hungry? Do you need to burp? Is your diaper full? Are you constipated? What do you want? Help me. Every parent has been there. Help me, child. Speak to me. What do you want? You know, couples have wrestled with that question. Maybe after an argument, when tensions are high, one says to the other, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? It's a uh, very deep philosophical question. What do you want? What are you seeking? What do you want in life? And that's the question Jesus was asking Andrew and John, the apostle, what do you want? What are you seeking? And so they say to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And so notice the two disciples that left John the Baptist to follow Jesus, they didn't quite answer his question directly. They just asked, Rabbi, where are you staying? Commentators think that it was Andrew who asked Jesus this question because Andrew, he had this personality that was a little bit cautious, a little careful, and that was his personality. And Jesus' response shows just how much he understood Andrew. He says to them, come and see. Find out for yourself. Make up your own mind. I'm not going to force you. Just come. And see. And that, that's our invitation as well here at E Free Church. Just come and see. 
Maybe Christianity is not very familiar to you. Maybe this is all new to you. Maybe learning about God and the Bible is a little bit new, and that's okay. We say, just come and see, explore. We're not going to force you. Take as long as you need, just come and see what Jesus is all about. That is our invitation. And really, there's no better series than the one that we're in right now to learn about the wonders of Jesus. And so Andrew and John, they followed Jesus. They stayed with him all day long. And what they heard was so compelling, so fascinating, so gripping, they didn't want to leave. You see, Jesus, he understood Andrew and John. He knew them, and he knew what they needed. So Jesus now has two disciples. Let's continue on. Verse 41. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John. There's another John there, by the way. That's another John. Are you following? John is the father of Simon and Andrew. Not to be confused with John the Baptist and not to be confused with John the Apostle. So, then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So now we're introduced to Peter, who at that time is called Simon. Now, Peter is probably the most well-known of all the disciples. Certainly, he's the most preached about disciple by pastors. And the reason why he's the most preached about is because so many people can relate to Peter. So, if I just sum up Peter's personality, here's Peter's personality. Act first. Think later. Act first. Think later. Later, because Peter was very impulsive. Very, very impulsive. Can anybody uh, relate to that? Don't raise your hand. I want you to think about that first. But a lot of people can relate to Peter. Act now. Deal with all the consequences later on, right? Peter's mentality is, it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. That was his approach to life. So can you just picture Andrew rushing to his brother, shouting out, we have found him, the Messiah. Andrew spent the entire day with Jesus, and he couldn't wait to tell his brother Simon. And I'm sure that that was the same for John. John the apostle, he couldn't wait to tell his brother James. And so when Simon came to Jesus, Jesus took one look at him, and he changed his name. He said, you are Simon. But from now on, you will be called Cephas. Cephas is an Aramaic name. Aramaic was a very closely related language to uh, the, the Jewish language. And so, the Hebrew language. And, and so, Jesus says, you are now Cephas, the rock. We interpret that, translate it as Peter, Petros the rock. In essence, here's what Jesus was saying 
to Simon. He was saying, Simon, you tend to listen to what everyone around you is saying. You easily are affected by the opinions of others. You're impulsive. So, your name is Simon, but from now on, from this moment, you will be a rock. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about Peter and the others a little bit later on. But let's continue on in verses 43 and 44. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Now, John the Apostle specifically tells us here that Jesus found Philip, not the other way around. Okay, very important. Jesus found Philip. It wasn't Philip who took the initiative to find Jesus. We're told that Jesus found Philip. Why? Why did Jesus seek Philip? The possibility is this. Philip was the kind of person that nobody ever remembered to bring along. He was shy, quiet, unassuming. He was comfortable in the background. Now, Philip was very practical. He was very smart, in fact, because later on we're told that he asks Jesus some really good questions. But overall, Philip, he was in the background. He was comfortable just behind the scenes. Quiet, shy, unassuming, comfortable in the background. That describes many people in the church today. If that's you, I'd ask you to raise your hand, but you're probably too shy to raise your hand. <laughs> but that's quite all right. You see, because there are many in the church who are like Philip. There are many Philips or Philippas, female versions of Philips. There are many Philips and Philippas in the church today. And sometimes, here's the thing, sometimes shy people can be mistaken for unfriendly people. But there's a big difference between unfriendly and shy. A huge difference. And sometimes people confuse one for the other. Churches are filled with friendly people who are just shy, quiet, and they like to be in the background. A shy person, yeah, I see a hand. Do I see another? Do I see another? A shy person may not initially say much, especially in a group setting. But when you sit down with that person face-to-face, -face, you can learn and discover the treasure that there is in that person. 
Jesus seeks the unassuming. He seeks the shy, the ones in the background. Now, for those of you who've been wired to be bold and outgoing in the life of the party, ask yourself this. Maybe God has wired you that way to reach out to the Philips and the Philippas in your life. And not take it as just, oh, that's just the way I'm wired. I'm just loud. I'm just, uh, I just uh, initiate a lot. How about, no, God has wired me that way so that I can reach out to those who are not and include them in conversations, in gatherings, include them in life. Our world and our churches are filled with all kinds of personalities, aren't they? And while the reality is we might favor some personalities over others, we need to remind ourselves that we all have the same maker. Oftentimes in the church, we ask, why can't that person be more like this, more like that? What we really are saying is, why can't that person be more like me? The reality is we don't need more people like me or like you. We just need one another and to recognize that we have the same maker. Let's go on to verses 45 and 46. 45, Philip, this is remarkable, went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth? exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see for yourself, Philip replied. So Philip, having spent time with Jesus, he actually came out of his shell, and then he went out and told Nathanael. By the way, Nathanael in the other Gospels, he's referred to as Bartholomew. That's the same person. So Nathanael or Bartholomew. Bartholomew or Nathaniel, if you had to describe his personality, it would be this. If you had a glass and there was water in it, it would be half empty. <laughs> That's his personality. He is kind of like pessimistic. Oh, why do you want to do it that way? Or, you know, are you sure about that? So Nathaniel had that kind of personality. That was kind of glass, half empty approach to life. Very skeptical. And he did not think very highly of Nazareth. But I love Philip's response. Come and see. Come and see. Who else said this? Well, Jesus. So Philip, he took his cue from Jesus. And I think this is really cool. Okay. Philip spent time with Jesus, and Jesus just rubbed off on Philip to the point where he even uses the same language. Hey, come and see. Come and see for yourself. I mean, talk about discipleship. I mean, that's what happens when you hang out with somebody, right? You hang out with somebody long enough, you start to talk like that person. You start to dress like that person. You even start to look like that person. It's frightening. But that's the beauty of discipleship, mentorship. Philip learned from Jesus himself. And what he learned was so compelling, it changed his life. And it changed his life in a way that it compelled him to tell someone else 
about this man, Jesus. So this quiet, shy, unassuming Philip went out and told Nathanael. And Philip's message to Nathanael was this. Just come and see for yourself. It doesn't matter where he's from. If he is the Christ, you will know. Let's go on to verse 47. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Well, Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. I, and then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Now, this is a remarkable account. Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and he immediately, like he's done with every other person, he makes a pronouncement on Nathanael's character. Jesus sees right into the heart of Nathanael, and he says to him, you will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament, to Jacob. You see, because centuries earlier, Jacob, he left his home. He's on the run because of his brother Esau. And at Bethel, Jacob had a dream. And in this dream, he saw a ladder, a ladder reaching up to heaven. And on it, he saw the angels of God ascending and descending. And Jesus says to Nathanael, you're going to understand this dream. You will come to understand the significance of this dream. You will see, Nathanael, that I, I am that ladder. I'm the only one to God. There's no other way to God. Now, ladders are important, right? Especially this time of the year. Your Christmas lights on your house, they don't just magically get up there, do they? I mean, it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, if you could take a string of lights and just throw them up and they somehow magically fall onto the hooks of the house. That, that'd be wonderful. That, that, that'd be wonderful. But that's why ladders are so important. They're essential. Jesus is the ladder. Now, next Sunday morning and next Sunday evening, we're going to talk much more about Jesus as this ladder. But thankfully, in our case, it's not our job to climb the ladder to try to get to God. You see, God came down to us. He came down to us. And we're going to talk much more about that next Sunday. And so, as we prepare for next weekend, I'm going to leave you with two important takeaways 
for this coming week in preparation for next Sunday. As we think about John chapter 1 and the calling of the first disciples, here are my two takeaways. And I hope that what I'm about to share with you will stay with you throughout this coming week. Here's takeaway number one. Jesus calls flawed people to follow him. Jesus calls flawed people to follow him. We have all been let down by people in our lives, haven't we? At one time or another, we've all been let down. Nobody is perfect. We're prone to making mistakes. But what Peter did to Jesus when he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in the same evening, what Peter did to Jesus, for most of us, that is inexcusable. Think about the hours that Jesus invested in Peter's life. Peter was part of the inner circle. He was amongst the closest to Jesus. And Peter turned his back on Jesus. Maybe in your life, you've been burned by a friend. Maybe you've been burned by a family member. Maybe you've been burned by a church member. Someone close to you just completely turned on you. My guess is this. Every one of us has experienced that. Peter turned on Jesus. How about John and James, these two brothers? They, they, they were so focused on making sure that they would receive the best seats in the kingdom of God in heaven. They wanted it so badly. You know what they did? They had their mom go talk to Jesus. They made their mom do the dirty work. And when the other disciples learned of this, they were so furious at John and James. Not because they thought, how dare you demand those seats. They were so upset because, oh, we didn't think of it first. I should go get my mom to talk to Jesus. Jesus calls flawed people to follow him. And you know what? That's good news for you. And that's good news for me. You see, because Jesus wasn't waiting for them to get their act together before calling them to change the course of history. He called them with all their shortcomings, all their faults, all their flaws. And he said, just follow me. And so the first takeaway is this, that Jesus calls flawed people to follow him. And guess what? He only calls flawed people to follow him. But it doesn't stop there. Don't just think, okay, whew, I'm flawed and Jesus calls me so good, I'm in. There's more to it than that. And here's the second takeaway. Flawed people have great potential in the hands of Jesus. Flawed people have great potential in the hands of Jesus. Peter, he was impulsive, but he was also bold and brave and daring. We needed Peter. 
Andrew, cautious, but practical, prudent. We need Andrews in the church. Philip, quiet and shy. Nathaniel, he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. Jesus knew all this. He was the ultimate manager. You know, in sports, head coaches, not only do they need to know the game inside and out, managers more than anything else, head coaches, they need to know how to handle their players, right? That's probably their most important responsibility because locker rooms are filled with all kinds of personalities. If Jesus were a head coach today of a professional team, guess what? He would win manager of the year every year because he understood his disciples and he knew how to relate to them. He knew their potential. You know, for those of you right now in our church who are in some mentoring, discipleship type of program or relationship, maybe you are investing in the life of somebody younger than you. If you're in that situation, one of the first things that you want to recognize is that person's potential, not whether that person has arrived, not whether that person has it all together. Because if that person has it all together, that person doesn't need you. <laughs> but think about the potential of that person. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't expect them to have all of life figured out. What he simply required was this one thing. Trust. That's what he required. Trust. And that's what we do when we give our hearts to Jesus. We entrust our lives to him. And here's what happens. When we entrust our lives to him, we will experience change in our lives. Because what follows trust is obedience. Think about this. Trust without obedience is really no trust at all, right? We've all been familiar with that business exercise, right, where, you know, an employee falls back expecting, you know, all the uh, co-workers to catch that person. Oh, yeah, I trust you. I trust you. But uh, just in case, I'm not going to do it. Trust must be followed by obedience. And when we obey, here's what happens. Jesus changes us. Last Sunday, I asked you the question, how has Jesus changed your life? And then I asked you, you can ask a, a similar question, how is Jesus changing your life? Or if you can't even answer that, how must he change your life? How should he change your life? I invite you to come back next Sunday morning and evening because we're going to talk about what it means to trust Jesus fully. I invite you to come with the entire family. Tomorrow, uh, next Sunday, I'm going to share a message for the entire family, for all life stages, at 10 a.m. for part one, and then part two in the evening. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Until that time, would you entrust your life to Jesus this week and obey and see how he will change you? Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the reminder through your word that you changed lives. We've taken a look at the first disciples of Jesus. As we uh, take a step back next Sunday and, and go back to even before the ministry of Jesus, as we focus on the birth of Christ, Father, I pray that this week leading up to next Sunday, that you would give us the, the boldness and confidence not to miss any opportunity to shine the light of Jesus to those around us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your message this morning. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.